Thanks, guys. You did a great job. That was your gift for Father's Day or Grandfather's Day or something or whatever. So. As uh, many of you know, I have uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, and that finishes my time for two years at BCBC as the interim pastor. And because of that, I probably should not go where I'm going to go in the next ten minutes. But I really, um, I, with all of you, I've been deeply distressed with some of the things that the church has been going through. Um, even when I'm in Victoria, I think about you and what we do. In the last couple of weeks, I've, something has just really um, troubled me a lot. I'll just be very honest with you. And if at the end of it you don't like me, I'm sorry. Here's what you got. Last week, some people were giving out some petitions and flyers about meetings outside the church. Actually, in the church, we moved them outside. And I'll just will tell you honestly from my heart, I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that. This morning, as I came into church, and I was a little bit early, I came in and there was a group of people outside handing out something again. I don't know what it was because it's in Chinese. And they were wanting some signatures. And I don't know what it said. And one of the other Chinese pastors went and talked to them and, and whatever. But can I just tell you, I don't agree with that. That's not why we gather. Even if it was a petition to get me to stay on, I don't agree with that. We come for worship in the Word of God. Um, and that really upset me this morning. It really knocks me off center. And I will just plead with you as a congregation. We're going through, I know we're going through some difficult times. But can I plead with you? Do not go down that kind of road. It's a road of politicking. It's a road of lobbying. It's a road of my side bigger than your side and all that stuff. Folks, that is not the mind of God or the way of the Spirit. It is not. You'll hear about a little bit about prayer later this morning. That's the way of God. Um, and I'm sorry, I was just really upset this morning at that. I don't know who they were. I'm not trying to beat them up. But let's not go down that road. Okay? I plead with you, don't do that. Don't go there. Father, this morning, forgive me for anything that has been in my heart that's been wrong in the last 20 minutes. Forgive me for anything in my voice that is not of you. You know how deeply I feel about these folks and how much I want there to be healing and love and peace and joy and unity. And I don't believe it's found with petitions and signatures. It's found on our knees. 
May your spirit bring us to where we need to be. Forgive me, Father, for this morning, for what needs to be let go. Bring my mind back towards you, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last morning in a... Um, can I let you a little bit into my heart? It's dangerous. You have no idea what's there. You have no idea how hard it is for me now to turn from that to the scriptures. That's huge. So please just bear with me as we kind of get started. The last nine, ten weeks or so, every Sunday morning, we get on the VCBC bus. We visited a different city that's in the New Testament, trying to understand the geography, the history, the theology, and why Paul wrote to them the way he did. Because he was not writing in a vacuum. He was not writing from an ivory tower. He's writing into a situation, many of them, in fact, all of them, in one way or another, troubling and difficult. And we're trying to see what, you know, what was he saying to them and why was he saying the way he did. And I would, um, you know, I, I hope in some way this has challenged you. It helps open up the scriptures to you. You know why it's written. I would love to be able to take you there. If I was a philanthropist, which means I had lots and lots and lots of money, I would take you on a trip to these cities. I'd take you to Jerusalem. Two weeks in the Holy Land. How does that sound? That sound good? And on our way back, we go visit Scotland. You just got to go visit Scotland on your way home. I wonder if there's aspects of our Christian life that we believe deeply. But the problem, the deficiency is this. That specific truth does not make an impact on how we live each day. It does not really bring life transformation the way it should. I wonder if that's true of us in some way. I think, frankly, it is. Maybe one example of what those truths might be is a doctrine that we declare. We say in the Apostles' Creed, we say it, we sing about it. We did this morning, by the way. We, we declare it each time we come to communion. Remember Jesus says in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. For one, so I would have told you, I'd go to prepare a place for you, and I prepare a place that I will come back and take you to be with me. Week past Saturday, Friday and Saturday in Victoria, we buried a dear old friend. Standing around the graveside, we read that. And we stated and um, affirmed together the words of the Apostles' Creed. Last Sunday morning at communion here at the church, we take bread and wine and we say together, we do these things, what's the three words? Until, don't you know? Let's try it again. Until he comes. We believe that. But let me ask you this morning, what practical difference does that make in our lives? You see, it, it, each New Testament letter was written to speak into a specific situation. Sometimes the doctrinal, sometimes the moral, sometimes the relational. When Paul wrote an early letter, we're looking at it last, but it really should be first, to the church in Thessalonica. As we'll see in a moment, he calls this church a model church. But there was a problem. Some Christians had lost sight of the promise that Jesus would return. They thought that already happened and they missed it. They were worried about what happened to their loved ones who had already died. An understandable concern. 
Others, in the light of this Jesus is coming back statement, they become kind of morally lazy. Who cares? Whatever. Some relational problems have suffered, have surfaced. If you read the letter, you get that. So Paul addresses these issues in the light of the truth that Jesus would return, but the church had lost the impact of them. You have a Bible or whatever you track with me, First Thessalonians chapter 1, one two, and read through the chapter. We'll only stay at this one chapter this morning. That's all we really have time for. So allow me to walk you through this, this chapter and see where some of the ideas that come to us. <coughs> Verse 1. It begins, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. It's normal for those days, by the way, if you don't know, that the author of the letter put his name first. Paul is writing, Timothy's writing, whatever. That makes much more sense than what we do. We put our name at the very end of the letter. They put their name at the very beginning. And that's what he does. Notice, please, he's not writing to individuals. He's writing to the church, the gathered church. And then there's the usual words of thanksgiving, gratitude. We thank God always for you mentioning you in our prayers. And then Paul comments on three powerful things that he sees in the life of the church. We'll come back to these. He talks about your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Holy Spirit. Faith, hope, and love. That trilogy we know. And now he says in verse 5, he says, the gospel comes not just with words, but our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The gospel in its authenticity is more than a lecture. It is something that is pulsed by the dynamism and the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit. It changes the lives of people. The spirits at work and deep conviction comes to those who hear the message. And so he says in verse 7, 6 and 7, you also became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. He said, verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia, but your faith in God has become known to everyone. Rang out. You know that that's the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. This is the only occurrence of that word. And it's the word that means an echo. He said, God had sounded... Can I hit the symbols? Where's the stick things? Don't see them. Oh, there they are. Who's the drummer? Can I hit the symbols? Okay, thank you. He says, God has... Hit the symbols in life and in history. And everything that you are and I am is simply an echo of that. And we keep ringing and ringing out the message. And all we'll ever be is the echo. But God hit the symbols first in life with creation. Then he moved on through the voice of the prophets. He comes to the a resounding crescendo, crescendo of symbols in the life of Jesus. And in each one of these moments, you understand God is bringing his drumstick down on the symbols of history. And what we are asked to do is we are asked to be the echo of that. The ongoing vibration of his message of love and grace in the world. That's what we are. And they tell us, reading on, how you turn to God from idols to serve the true living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. Turning to God is a picture of conversion. Every conversion is a turning from something 
to God. We turn from the idols in one way or another. We think, well, in our modern technological society, we don't have idols. Oh, yes, we do. We worship idols of consumerism, idols of selfishness, greed, addiction. All kinds of idolatry are very much alive and well in our society. And we consciously turn from these idols to turn to God. It's really a way of talking about repentance. We turn away. There's two things that we're called to do, says Paul. First of all, to serve the living God. There is no such thing, by the way, young adults, as absolute freedom. There is no such thing as freedom. We are always, always serving something or someone. It was Martin Luther. That's not Martin Luther King. That's Martin Luther way back in the Reformation time. It was Martin Luther who said, freedom is not the right to do what we want. It is the power to do what we ought. And we find in Christ the freedom to be set free to serve a new master, the living God. The second thing we're called to do is to wait for his son Jesus. Remember the Thessalonian church had forgotten how to wait. And so some people ask those, are we living in the last days? The answer is always yes. We're always living in the last days. The last days started when Jesus left the earth. We're in the last days at any time when we stand between his two comings. The first coming was his birth, his incarnation. The next coming will be his return. These are the two bookends of history, as it were, in this season. And we stand between them. We stand in the last days. Two climactic events. We need to remember that there's absolutely nothing in history, nothing in our world system, that tell us, tells us about the return of Jesus. As Christians, we hold that truth solely and utterly on the Word of God, the Word of Jesus. People want to know this world, when this will happen. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, So when they met together, they asked him, his disciples, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, we know this word only by the word of Jesus, and we're not given the date. That's the basis of the truth. It was the same when God gave Abraham a promise for a new land. You remember he said to Abraham, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. He left everything he had, which was a lot of stuff, by the way. And he headed off on the promise of a word from a God he had not seen. He only heard his word. It was the same when God told Noah to build an ark. There was no sign of water or rain in the sky. His entire reputation, the life of his whole family, hung on the word of God. And it's the same for us, folks. We hang our lives on a promise. The promise is, I will come back. We base that on the single promise of the word of Jesus. Nothing else. No one else. We wait for Jesus. It says in Thessalonians, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In the 60s, which was a day of um, supposedly free love and a new freedom from sexual inhibitions, it was said that what people were afraid of in the 60s was not hell, it was herpes. Today, if there's an alarm about an impending apocalypse, may I say to you that for many people in our world, it's not the apocalypse of God that's feared. What we fear is the apocalypse of global warming. We fear rising oil prices. We're not worried about eternity. We're worried about the environment. But we need to be worried about God. Our culture is not good at waiting. We think we're just hanging around, doing nothing. 
someone writes, in our American culture, we're not encouraged to wait. We're told that most of life's problems can be fixed, and fixed quickly. We're more than a fast food society. We're a fast fix society. And if we have a problem here in God, there are plenty of places promising immediate solutions, instant cures. The benefits of the gospel, the writer says, have been adapted to fit our quick fix culture. So God's word often to us is simply to wait. And for many of us, people like me, that may be the one thing that's the hardest to do. You know why? We are impatient. And we're in a hurry. Waiting does not seem to do anything. We want action. We want it now. We want instant answers. Someone said, we know that God is faithful. It just seems sometimes he's so slow. So what do we do with this? In this passage, there's a lot in it. In fact, the whole book is a lot in it. We go back to that that verse in verse 3. We continually remember you before God our Father. Your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love. Your endurance inspired by hope. Paul says, when these three things synergize and they work together, you know what? They created what he calls in the Thessalonians a model church. So he says to us, as we wait for Jesus to return, our faith has to become action. The Christian faith, you know, starts with faith in God. Faith in Christ. As we sang this morning, faith about what happened on the cross. Faith to believe. That's the core of being a Christian. But faith is not passive. In one way or another, it must take steps to become active. Every molecule of faith is intended to be turned into action. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Faith without works, faith without being translated into action, is dead. So let me ask you, the church right now, what are you doing to put your faith into gear? Where are you involved in a place that will make you grow and help you grow? In case you say, well, I'm not sure where to start. Don't look very far. Ministry like this church, um, BBS coming up this summer, and all of the ministries, there's areas and places where you can start to be involved if you're not involved already. And I would say to you, pick one area of ministry, one area of service, and say, that's where I'm going to put my faith into action this year. And start there. Can you make that decision today? See where it goes. Paul goes on and he says, as we wait for Jesus to return in this model church, love calls for our best efforts. And you say, isn't that what he just said? Not quite. Because it moves it up a notch. The word for labor that's used here in the text is a strong word. It has that kind of sense that, you know, we put our backs into something. We work up a sweat. We we roll up our sleeves. And we get involved with something that will cost for our very best efforts. And we put labor into that. We will not just do the minimum. We'll not just do enough to get by. We will do the maximum. When our kids were teenagers and Saturday morning was kind of chore morning, and you got a bunch of jobs to do, and sometimes it was like tidying up their bedroom or bringing in firewood for the winter, whatever it was. Sometimes um, one of the boys would say to me, So, Dad, what's the minimum I have to do to get by? You see, they weren't allowed to go out to play on their bikes with friends or whatever until their jobs were all done. I used to put a note up in the fridge. This was the list. Three names, and under it were their jobs. And until all their jobs were ticked off and done, they couldn't go. 
They said to me later as they were growing up and had their own homes, I hated those ones. I went to one of their homes a couple of months ago, and guess what was on the fridge? <laughs> Lists for the kids. thought, yes. What's the minimum I have to do to get by? Wrong question. What does it mean to do the maximum? To put our back into something. What would motivate us to do that kind of effort? Only one thing, says the scripture, that is motivated by love. The kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross. The kind of love that stirs us up. The kind of love that calls for the maximum. Jesus did not come to the world as the Son of God and saying, So, what's the least I could do to get by? What's the minimum I can do here? Love demands what duty would not dare ask. Love has earned that right to ask out of you and of me because of the cross. In our society in a city like Vancouver, I continue to be amazed at the kind of um, community efforts and community projects and stuff that people will be involved in. You know what day-to-day is, by the way? Father's Day. You know what else it is? Car-free day. Do you know that Car Free Day is run entirely by volunteers? I heard in the radio coming in as I was driving my car. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, that they're getting inquiries from all around the world how volunteers can set up Car Free Day. We're a city that um, has a large gay population. People get on committees and they do an enormous amount of work for a cause that they believe in. We've got to say that as Christians, we are called to serve the highest cause that's ever been known. To hitch our wagon to the cause of the cross. To serve the living God. Isn't that right? To give ourselves to something, the only thing that will have eternal value. The mission of the risen, the risen and the returning Son. We believe that what the gospel is is the only thing that will change the eternal address of people. And folks, that calls for nothing less than our best efforts. Love is not embarrassed about raising the bar in our lives. Love is not embarrassed about asking for the maximum. Love is not embarrassed about asking for more. Love is not embarrassed about asking for everything that there is in us and giving ourselves to the cause of the cross. Got it? As we wait for Jesus to return, says Paul, hope prevents us from quitting. Do you ever get up some days and you feel like quitting? Throwing in the towel? I can be honest and say, yeah, they're on. We say, this isn't worth it anymore. Many of us, if not all of us, I think come to that point in our lives one day or another. But just doesn't seem to be any way to get through the wall and ahead of where we're going. We're overwhelmed. We're overcome. And then a little voice whispers to us. It's the voice of hope. The voice of hope. We hear a faint echo. At first it seems far away. Then it starts to get louder and louder in our ears. It's the trumpet of hope. Ringing in our ears. Declaring its message that we must not quit. We, we cannot quit. We have come too far. And frankly for us, there is too much at stake. Hebrews says, great picture. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul. Firm and secure. Picture of an anchor, something that's fixed and solid, that digs into the ground and 
It doesn't let us be buffeted around. It, it just gives us stability. But for a lot of years, you know, that picture didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Because I'm thinking, what the anchor really does is it doesn't let me move forward. If it's stuck in the ground, it's holding me back. It's preventing me from moving forward. And I didn't, that didn't make sense to me, and I, I didn't really know what to do with that. And then, several years ago, I was reading through a book, and the author opened up a different dimension of that picture to me, another line of thought, another picture. I sure hope he's right, because I liked it. The author goes on and describes the practice of sailing ships in the 18th century. When a sailing ship doesn't have any motor, is trying to navigate its way into a narrow channel or harbor, especially in rough weather, and the wind's blowing a bit, they only have their sails. And it's really risky to use your sails because you don't have a whole lot of control over where you're going. There's not enough ability to maneuver in this small channel. So what did they do? Well, they put their anchor out on a small boat or what's called a dory with some of the crew. And they let the man take the anchor ahead of them to where they wanted to go into the channel. And they did, the, what they did was they dropped the anchor well ahead of the ship, obviously attached to the rope from the ship. And then with the anchor now set ahead of them, they used the rope and the anchor to pull the ship forward when it really couldn't go on its sails. Then they picked it up again, and they went forward a little further, and they dropped the anchor again. And instead of the anchor being used to hold them back, the anchor is now anchored up ahead of them, and they're using it to pull them forward. Got the picture? That is called kedging. Begins with a K, kedging. The anchor's ahead of them, and they use the anchor to pull them forward. Now, that makes sense to me. In the same way, can you see where God uses hope as an anchor in your life? Not just to somehow be stuck in the ground and holding you back. We appreciate the stability of that picture. Not just the Savior who being tossed around. But hope is set ahead of us, which is where hope always is as an anchor. It is set and fixed ahead of us. And then we pull on hope. And we pull ourselves, even at times, we drag ourselves forward into that kind of thing. Sometimes I come into church in the middle of the week, empty and quiet. I sit for um, a few minutes, and I know where kind of most of you sit Sunday morning. And I pray for you as you're going to come in. By the way, if you move, you won't get prayed for, because you're in a different space. And sometimes the question I ask is, are there people who are going to come in Sunday morning, are you facing a struggle that maybe no one knows about? You're thinking to yourself, what's the use? You're going to come to church this morning and you just say, I give up. I can't do anymore. Maybe that's you this morning. I don't know. Maybe you came not expecting very much. Will you allow God this morning to set an anchor ahead of you? And then you can pull on that and let Him pull you forward. And very simply, you decide, I'm not going to give up. You came this morning and I hope I can send you home in a few minutes. And you've decided and committed. I am not going to give up. Because of hope in my life. Last thought for just a moment. We are a sign of hope in the world. Do you know that? The church is to be like hope planted in the world. When we come to worship. In worship we stand on our tiptoes. 
And worship, we think about what heaven's going to be like. Worship is an act of hope. Each and every Sunday we come here, we are kedging. We're pulling ourselves forward little by little. Each Sunday in worship, we're declaring that we will endure. We will hang on. We will not give up. We will look ahead. And especially as we did last Sunday, when we come to communion. When the Jewish people, if you remember, way back in the Old Testament, book of Exodus, when they gathered, do you remember under the blood that marked the doorpost of the house on Passover night? Do you remember that? Can you imagine that night? Like Tommy and his little family and whatever are gathered in a home. And they begin to hear the cries and the wails coming from the Egyptian homes as the angel of death sweeps over the land. And children begin to die. And Tommy and his family, and our family and your family all gathered, huddled in their homes. And we just looking out the door. When are we going to go? You know what it says about those people, those families? They waited to leave. And they got coats on. Their sandals on their feet. Staff in their hand. And they're looking out the door. Can you imagine a little kid saying, Daddy, is it time to go yet? Is it time to go yet? Ready to go. When Jewish people finish their annual Passover meal, they now celebrate every year. Do you know what they finish it with? Do you know what they say to one another as they shake hands and leave? Do you know what they say? Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. They want to share the Passover, not just in their homes in Vancouver, Victoria, or Calgary, whatever. They say, next year, let's try to do this in Jerusalem. And that's why when we take communion, we gather last Sunday at the table and we got bread and we got wine, we say that we do these things, we break this bread, we share this wine until he comes. So we're living in the last days. Always. We're living between these two epiphanies, it says the Bible. The epiphany, the appearance of Jesus to the earth. And the other epiphany is his coming in power and in glory. Between these two epiphanies, we're called to nothing less, to nothing less, than to live like believers. We're called to nothing less than to be a model church. Tommy, come back and lead us. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us, we pray. Please stand. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you.